In our last episode, we looked at the relationship between an animal's weight and its metabolic rate. And we looked at how this holds true regardless of the size of the mammal, all the way from an elephant down to a mouse. And this is only one of these laws, these scaling laws or so-called power laws. We know an animal's weight, we can not only work out its metabolic rate, but we can work out how many hours it'll sleep for in an average night and how long it's going to live for. So in this episode, we're joined again by Jeffrey West, distinguished Shannon professor and former president of the Santa Fe Institute. Jeffrey's going to explain how when we double the size of an animal, we only increase its metabolic rate by 75%. He's going to explain where on earth this law comes from. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show, Jeffrey, to talk about scaling. So this is essentially part two of our discussion on scaling. So if you're listening and you haven't heard part one, go back and listen to part one. And in part one, we talked about mammals predominantly. We're going to broaden that significantly in this episode. We talked about how those mammals are very diverse. A mouse is very different to a human, to a horse, to a whale. But despite all this diversity, there are these scaling laws that govern how the size and certain things these mammals do change. So if you know the weight of a mammal, you can predict how long they'll sleep for every night, how long they live for, their heart rate, that despite all of this diversity, there is this incredible universality to them. And this comes back to the underlying system, which we're going to talk about a lot in this episode. But first of all, even just staying with the animal kingdom, these scaling laws isn't just limited to mammals. Isn't that right, Jeffrey? Yes, indeed. So as you said, in the last episode, we focus on mammals. I mean, that's probably what most people are familiar with. But what was quickly discovered was that these scaling laws, and in particular, the one I described for metabolism, but all these scaling laws actually were true across the entire animal kingdom. That is, across birds, across crustacea, <laughs> across fish, across insects. And much later, even I and my collaborators took it down into cells. So it had this kind of what we call universal characteristic. And the big question, of course, was where does it come from? I mean, it seems so extraordinary. It must have some basis in underlying principles. And one of the big challenges of that is that we believe it is the animal kingdom, so to speak, all of nature is derived by natural selection. So somehow it's embodied in the dynamics of evolution and natural selection. So that was sort of the problem, <laughs> but this problem became more and more intriguing to me. And I began to realize that whatever it is that underlies these scaling laws, since it didn't depend on whether it was a mammal or an insect, or by the way, a tree could be, it doesn't have to be just the animal, it's plants and trees also have the same scaling laws. It has to be independent of the evolved engineering, engineered structure. That is, we're obviously very different than a tree, 
but we're obviously different than a fish or even a bird. And yet we satisfy the same laws. So whatever underlies this must be something that transcends those huge differences. And as I thought about it, it sort of became obvious to me anyway, what it must be, because what you realize is that one common commonality, obviously, among organisms is that we each contain an enormous number of cells, of components that need to be serviced, roughly speaking, democratically and efficiently. And how do we do that? That doesn't matter what it is, what organism it is. Let me interrupt you there just for a second. There's a couple of things there that I think are really important for if you're listening to this to get your head around. So first of all, we're interested in this because all the systems we're talking about, whether the human or that, they're complex systems. And what we're talking about here is scaling, which as you very eloquently put in your book, is the study of how complex systems respond to changes in their size. So as we make a shrew bigger, what happens to the shrew? Or if we make a human bigger to be like a bigger mammal, what does it actually look like? Where we're going to start here, as you said, is with the cells. And the thing that I found quite, again, mind-blowing about this stuff is, once you say it out loud, it makes sense, but we all have the same cells. The shrew has the same cells as the humans, as the whales. So that's this incredible starting point, isn't it, Jeffrey? Yes, absolutely. And not only are the cells basically the same, your cells are the same, as you said, as a mouse or rat or a whale, what I began to realize was that the what you might call the terminal units of the multiple networks that keep you alive, whether it's your circulatory or respiratory system or your renal system, those terminal units, like your capillaries, are basically the same. That is, even though the network is much bigger in, in a whale than you, the cells that it supplies and the terminal unit that connects the uh, circulatory system to supply the cells, those are also invariant, as we say. That is, they don't change as you change the size. And I realized that's a huge constraint on the network system. And to just jump in there, just to preempt something that's coming up in the future, the way to think about that is it's about energy and infrastructure, really, isn't it? You know, it's the infrastructure that you need to get the energy to your cells. And we'll definitely come back to that comment. And that's what the network is. So the analog, by the way, is similar to, you know, if you have a building, the electrical outlets in a building, when you go from a house to a skyscraper, you don't scale up those electrical outlets. And so it is across the biosphere that those terminal units, as I like to call them, are invariant. They don't change with size. And that's a very good reasons for that, both in the building, but also in terms of just natural selection. As you evolve different species, natural selection doesn't, so to speak, invent the fundamental units. It has these building blocks and you build on that. But the other thing about these networks that is universal is the obvious one, that they have to go everywhere. You have to have electrical outlets in every room of your house, presumably. And the last of the generic universal properties is a very powerful one and requires a little bit of thinking. And that is, again, going back to ideas of natural selection and evolution, was that the continuous feedback that is implicit in natural selection, the continuous competition and survival of the fittest leads towards a kind of optimization. So let me just give you an example of what I mean by that. That is, 
the circulatory system, the one that we share as mammals, for example, has evolved so as to minimize the amount of energy our hearts have to do to pump blood through that system to supply oxygen and nutrients to cells in order to keep you alive. And it does it in order to maximize what is called technically Darwinian fitness. That is to maximize the amount of energy you will allocate to sex and reproduction and the rearing of offspring, which is fundamental to the whole theory of evolution. So that's crucial because that idea of optimization permeates all of physics. And that meant that I could put this whole structure, these ideas, optimization, space filling, the network has to go everywhere, and this invariance of these terminal units, such as cells and capillaries, into a mathematical framework. And this is what's extraordinary, isn't it? That fundamentally we've now, you've now defined a network that exists in, we've all got the same cells, we've all got the same size of cells, we've all got the same size of capillaries as well. And they have to go everywhere. I love that part of it. They have to get to all the cells or else the cells will die. And those constraints combined with the need to supply that network and that system in an optimized way and a non-wasteful way is pretty much where the network structure comes from and therefore where the mathematics and the rules come from, even though we feel these rules shouldn't exist. Can you talk about that? The task of the theoretical physicist is not only to conceive those, but then to put that into a mathematical language and then turn the crank, so to speak, and see what happens in this particular instance what happens if I change the size of the system? What happens? And if you do all that, amazingly, out pop all of these scaling laws. But you get a bonus from this. It's not just that you explain all these scaling laws, but you also explain the three quarters for metabolism and the origin of the number four. And the origin of the number four <laughs> cryptically can be put <laughs> that it's not four, it's actually three plus one, which is four, of course. <laughs> but that's critical, isn't it? That's critical. That's a critical way of phrasing it. Yes. Yeah, so this is what I mean by that. So one of the things when you solve all these equations is not only do you get these scaling laws, but in a certain sense, equally important, you get a mathematical description of the entire network. So you know everything about the network, how the network changes in size as it goes from your heart, say the cardiovascular system, as it goes from your heart through the aorta all the way down to the capillaries. It tells you the mathematics of that, how the network scales within itself, so to speak. So for example, if you perversely wanted to know what the radius, length, pulse rate was, the stress in the ninth branch of the circulatory system of a rhinoceros, <laughs> this theory will predict it. <laughs> and in fact, we of course, people have measured rhinoceroses' circulatory system, but they have done it, of course, for mice, rats, dogs, cats, and human beings. And the theory predicts it for whatever part of the network you want to talk about and the scaling laws. And here's the point I want to get to before you interrupt me. <laughs> here's the point that one of the structures that emerges from it is that, and I'll use the, this following phrase, is the network is fractal-like. That is something that repeats itself 
over and over again as you go down through the network, just in the same way as you look at a tree and you recognize intuitively that the tree is sort of self-similar. It just keeps repeating itself as it branches out. So much so that if you took a branch, some branch halfway up the tree, and you cut it off, and you took it away, and you plunked it on the ground, it would look like a little tree. And it would, in fact, be a little tree. And in fact, you could take a photograph of that little tree and blow it up, and it would just look like the big tree from which it came. That's called self-similarity, and it's technically called a fractal. And you and me are fractals. So what we're saying, just to attempt to summarize, is that because the cells are the same, the capillaries are the same, and because we then need a network to service all that in an optimized way, that's where the scaling for all us, and we'll say with mammals, comes from. The self-similarity is really key, isn't it? Because that's why the rule holds true from whether we go from ourselves to a horse or from a dog to us. It's that you're cutting off those little trees. And the tree is a wonderful example. I love the other example you've spoke to me about before is that if you, if you take an aerial view of a river and you watch all its tributaries going out and all that, and you zoom in and zoom in and zoom in, all those photos look very similar to one another. So that's where this scaling, so that's A, where the scaling comes from that we're able to actually mathematically work out how, how the system changes with size. But the three quarters or the, this magic number four comes from the manner in which the scaling happens. And that's a network property, or more importantly, it's a fractal property. So go for it. What is a fractal? Yeah, so I cryptically said, the four is actually three plus one. <laughs> and the three, if you just sort of go back through the mathematics, is actually a manifestation of the fact that we live in three dimensions. So if we lived in eight dimensions, that number would have been eight. The three I mentioned would have been eight. And the plus one comes from a very special property of fractals. And that is that they effectively especially when they're optimized, as the way I just talked about, they increase the apparent dimensionality of the system. They add a whole nother dimension to the system. And it's a bit like if you take a sheet, a sheet of paper or a bed sheet, you normally think of that as sort of two-dimensional. It's just a two-dimensional piece of paper or a two-dimensional sheet of your bed. But if you crumple it up, it becomes a volume. And you crumple it up and crumple it up, it becomes more and more volume-like. And that is indeed an analog of what you are doing with your network. You're making something that is actually three-dimensional. And by making it optimal, you are effectively adding another dimension. And the fractality adds another dimension, which is this plus one, which makes it four. So mathematically, the system the network system, and therefore the scaling, acts as if we're four-dimensional and not three-dimensional. And this fractal-like, I mean, fractals are massive, and I mean, we could do three or four episodes on fractals, so our, our listener will just have to bear with us at the moment. But it's that fourth dimension that gives us the savings 
as we get bigger. So that's why we don't need to double our metabolism when we double our weight. It's that fractal-like self-similarity that allows us to get these, these essentially efficient savings in the amount of energy we need. So it's better to be bigger, isn't it? Because you don't need as much energy proportionally to run yourself. Correct. So unit mass of tissue per gram of tissue or per cell, you need less energy the bigger you are. And By the way, this has huge consequences throughout all aspects of biology and life. And maybe one just to tie it back to the beginning of this discussion, where we started out by talking about aging and mortality. This means that the bigger you are, the less hard your cell is working. The bigger you are, there's less wear and tear, the longer you live systematically. So this is the origin of why bigger things live longer than smaller things. And why is there less wear and tear if you're bigger? You're using less energy and creating less entropy. That is, you're creating less damage the bigger you are because simply you're using much less energy. If you have an engine, an automobile, and uh, you insist on racing it at uh, 10,000 revs per minute every time you drive it, I can assure you That car will not live as long as a car that's driven by a little old lady or a little old man like me who keeps the the revs at about two or 3,000 revs per minute. So, you know, cars and machines last much longer the less stress you put on them. And so it is with your cells. And if we go right back to the beginning of our first episode together, Jeffrey, you've got mammals with roughly the same number of heartbeats. But some of them, because of their size, if they're bigger, their heart is beating a lot slower. If they're smaller, their heart is beating a lot faster. And that speed of that heart rate, that quick speed of that small animal, that's your engine running at its high revs. That's right. That's a macroscopic version of what I said about cells. I mean, it's sort of intuitively obvious that if you have a heart, a small heart that's beating at 1,500 times a minute, that heart built of the same stuff as a much bigger one that's only beating at 10 times a minute is going to not survive as long. (laughs) And indeed, taking that idea, you could do the mathematics and you can derive the scaling law for lifespan. If you plotted lifespan against weight on logarithmically, going up by factors of 10, the slope of that would be approximately, and is approximately, one quarter. And the theory predicts, because of the network system, that the heart rate should decrease with a slope of one quarter. That is, if you plot heart rate versus weight, logarithmically, again, going up by factors of 10, you will see a straight line whose slope is approximately minus one quarter, minus meaning it's decreasing. And here's the kicker. If lifespan is increasing as mass of the one quarter and heart rate is decreasing with mass of the one quarter and you multiply those things together, you take lifespan times heart rate, they cancel each other out. So heart rate times lifespan is the same for everybody. But what is heart rate times lifespan? That's the number of heartbeats in a lifetime. So there it is. So you can derive it from these fundamental equations built on this network theory. 
And you can predict what that number is, which is about one and a half billion heartbeats. And that's why, to go back to your even earlier question, we live 100 years. So that's another of order 100 years. Why 100 years is the lifespan on the average, of course. Our natural lifespan is about 40 to 50 years for a human being. And indeed, the expected lifespan of human beings on this planet in, say, 1830 was probably about 35 years. By the mid-19th to end of 19th century, it had risen to about 40. And now, you know, in developed countries, this number is now twice that, 80. And that's because of all the interventions, the huge interventions that we've made, the most important of which, by the way, is hygiene. And that has led with, of course, the huge advances in medicine to doubling our expected lifespan. So just to close that off before we begin another chapter, what we're talking about here is, again, going back to complex systems, is scaling, which is the study of how complex systems respond to changes in their size. And what we're seeing is that, A, that's not linear necessarily in the sense that um, it's not one-to-one. -one. We double the size of the animal. We don't necessarily double the metabolism. In fact, we know we don't. So there's an interesting relationship there. And there's also a universality to these laws as well. And in our next episode, Jeffrey, because you're coming back, we're going to expand this away from mammals. And we're going to talk about companies and cities, because it turns out they follow scaling laws as well. Jeffrey, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.